He had struggled with addiction, and yet he had come to faith in Jesus. And in his little church in, in East Nashville, uh, all of his friends in the church figured that they were going to help him start off on his new life. And so they, they found him an apartment, and they, he didn't have anything to his name, but they bought him a microwave oven, and they, they filled his, his, his you know, cabinets up with some basic food staples. They got him a pan. They got him a, a table and a couch, and, and somebody gave him some chairs so he could sit down and read his Bible and, and, and have dinner, and they were so excited about it. And then after a few weeks, his name was Jack. He stopped showing up. They were concerned about him. They'd call him and leave a message you wouldn't call back. They uh, finally, after about a month, they were so concerned that several people from the church just went after a worship service, went over to his apartment, knocked on his door. They opened his door. It was open. And he was sitting on the floor. And he had sold every piece of furniture, the TV, the microwave, pawned them off in order to get money for drugs. And he hadn't been back and hadn't returned their messages because he was so ashamed of himself. All this community of people, this church, loving him in his brokenness, and he had taken advantage of it in order to further an addiction. You can imagine how discouraged those followers of Jesus were. They were wondering, what's the point of even trying? We invest we have everything we have in this group of people to try to minister the love of God to them, and it ends up financing somebody's addiction. We're going to read from a letter that was written to some Christians who were really facing some discouragement, and they were thinking about giving up, giving up on the church, giving up on Jesus. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 19 and go through verse 25. This is God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that's opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What do we see here? First we see pretty straightforward, honest admission of the temptation that we face at times to give up on the church. We, say, we read, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It, it's something that we easily fall into. Why were they tempted to give up on the church? The reason they were primarily tempted is that they were Jewish followers of Jesus, probably in Rome, at a point where they were surrounded by a pagan Roman culture that hated them for being Jewish, and they were surrounded more closely by their fellow uh, Jews who resented the fact that they were following Jesus and considered them heretics, therefore. And so they had lost their families. They had lost 
possibly their careers. They had lost their social network. They had lost their position in the local synagogue. They had nothing. Everybody was against them. Everything was at risk. And it was so tempting to just walk away from it all and get your family back and get your friends back and get your career back, get your social network back, get your seat in the synagogue restored to you, get your name and honor restored before everybody who matters to you. Um, They were tempted because of the social pressures and the persecution that they were undergoing as Jewish followers of Jesus from both sides. Um, and, and in some parts of the world, that is still very much the case. When you see Muslim background followers of Jesus in the Muslim world, um, they may lose everything to follow Jesus. And the temptation is, is to return to Islam and, and to their families to get everything back. And that's certainly what these first recipients to the letter of Hebrews would have been tempted by to, to give up on the church. And, and for some of us, it might be different reasons uh, why we would face the temptation. There may still be social pressures, the, the, the non-believing extended family members who always plan family events on Sunday so that you have to choose between them and your spiritual family. Uh, you know, that's a real pressure. It may be more subtle than the first readers of this letter uh, went through, but it's real nonetheless. Um, other times you might be tempted to give up on the church because the church just doesn't look very much like the family of Jesus. You know, for decades, um, we in, in North America have been building ministries who've had their main success uh, defined by size, by numbers. Uh, you know, the church of 5,000 members, the church of 10,000 members, bigger, larger, congregational size being the sign of the mark of the Holy Spirit, it seems. And that's left a lot of folks growing up in churches where they don't really have much real stable, tight-knit, closely known community. They don't really experience church family because they're in a church that's so big and so impersonal, it's always about the big worship production, the kind of worship palooza Sunday morning. And it's certainly possible in a large church to find community, but you have to really try, uh, uh, much more so than, than elsewhere. They may, maybe you've been in a church where there's little accountability for the leaders where there's little community, where the emphasis on size and production value instead of spiritual growth, biblical community, self-sacrificial love, and the mission of God to bring the welcome of Jesus to all the earth. Um, Kevin Miller talks about what he calls the Clarence Principle. Uh, He writes this, he says, when I was a kid, Saturday mornings were chore day. Often my dad would say, come on kid, and I'd hop in the station wagon and we'd drive down the street to Hooper Wolf's Hardware Store. And Hooper Wolf's had an old, you know, wood door. It was painted white except around the doorknob where it was no longer white. Uh, You walked in, you could hardly move. There were narrow aisles. The counters were so filled with merchandise. Shelves overflowing, stuff hanging from the ceiling. You'd think, there's no way I'm going to find anything here. But the thing is, you didn't have to find anything there because there was always Clarence at the counter. And he'd say, help you today? And my dad would say something like, I want to hang a light out back. And Clarence would come out from behind the counter and he'd ask questions. Well, where are you going to hang it? Over the patio? Well then, and then he'd start rummaging through shelves and he'd pull off just the right light fixture. He'd say, you want a light like this and don't use these bolts here. They're only good for indoor stuff. For outdoor, you want the galvanized ones over here. Um, Your wall is brick, isn't it? Even though our town was small, I was impressed, he writes that he knew that our house was made of brick. Well, to run the conduit through brick, you want a masonry drill bit at least three quarters of an inch, and if we don't have one in stock, you can get one over at Miller's Lumberyard. 
and then Clarence would pull a flat carpenter's pencil off of his ear and he'd get out a little piece of paper and he'd sketch it all out. The conduit goes here and make sure you don't mount the light too close to the soffit. Miller writes, today, when I have a project on Saturday, I head to Home Depot. Unlike Hooper Wolves, where you had the parallel park on the street, there's an ocean of parking at Home Depot. And inside, Home Depot is huge. The ceilings are 30 or 40 feet high. Home Depot has 40 times the inventory of Hooper Wolves. It all looks great under bright argon lighting. There's a guy in an orange apron a block away. If you run him down, he's likely to say, sorry, I work in paint. I'm just covering in electrical because somebody called in sick. So you're pretty much on your own. Miller writes, a similar thing has happened in the American church. We have programs that are amazing with Disney-level quality and technological sophistication, but what's missing is Clarence. We all need a Clarence, someone who knows more than we do, who will guide us to grow in Jesus Christ. Throughout the Bible, he writes, this is the primary way faith has been passed on. Moses trained Joshua in how to lead. Eli trained Samuel in how to pray. Jesus trains his apostles. Timothy's grandmother, Lois, trains up her daughter, Eunice, who trains up her son, Timothy. And Paul calls Titus his son in the faith. When it comes to helping people grow into spiritual maturity, the Bible gives us the Clarence principle. The older teach the younger, and those more mature in faith guide those who are newer in their walk with Jesus. Sometimes we give up on the church because what we really need to find is the church. Find the people who are living as a community of discipleship. The big parking lot and the professional lighting aren't what make a church a church. It's Clarence. It's the people gathering together around God's word and sacraments who can help us follow Jesus, help us encourage one another in, in love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We see here a frank admission of the temptation that believers have to give up on the church. We also see here, however, a vision for the church. He says, let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is a, a vision for the church as intentional community, uh, a biblical vision which centers us not on finding great worship experiences, though I love a worship experience, but, but on finding believers and pouring ourselves intentionally into them and investing in them where our lives are each other's business because we're family together. Dennis McCallum says, says this about this passage. He says, this is completely different than modern Western society where people are expected to mind their own business and where privacy becomes a fetish. We have to give up the autonomous, individualistic, secret life and give ourselves over to the other people of God to know and to be known. You know, I look at the language in Acts 2 that, that Elizabeth read for us earlier, where at that first Pentecost, when they were preaching the Word of God, you have this description that they were devoted to the fellowship. It's strong language. Devotion is the language of worship. They were devoted to the fellowship, to being the family of God together, 
to living life together as God's people, as a family, where we know each other's business and we still love each other, you know? That's the beauty, where we're close enough to sin against each other and loved by God enough and forgiven enough to forgive each other and to use that to grow our relationship in depth and breadth. We read they were devoted to the fellowship, those first followers of Jesus. Then we read that they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they were together and they were breaking bread in their homes together. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were together. They were together. They were together. And God added to their number those who were being saved. It's a picture of intentional Christian community, intentional investment and belonging mutually to one another. Um, you know, and, and every generation has had, a, had its strengths in doing this, and, and every generation has had its weaknesses. For the, like, World War II era builder, you know, generation Christians, uh, if the church doors were open, everybody was there. You know, they had Christian bowling leagues, Christian soccer leagues, Christian softball leagues. You go down to our archive and you see all of these mid-20th century trophies and stuff from when Memorial's softball team won over against all the other church's softball teams because that's how men did fellowship together is they did stuff together. And, and they did, they were really good at doing the big size community, all of us together in a room together because we belonged to each other. And church wasn't about getting my needs met. It was about these are the people I serve and belong to. And, and, and they weren't afraid to be committed to an institution even. Um, they did big size community well. That was like Russ Sloan when I first came to Memorial in the 1990s. You know, that guy, every line of his Bible had been circled and underlined and written over so many times you couldn't read a verse in there. But he, had, he, had, he was one of these guys who, if the building was open, he was there because he was a follower of Jesus. Now, their children's generation, the boomers, um, they were much better at one-on-one -on -one community building. You know, it's the picture of two people over a cup of coffee, sharing life and talking about their hopes and their dreams and their sorrows and, their, their, the, and, and the way God is working in their life and the way God's not working in their life. And, and they were really good at that level of community. And I think millennials and younger kind of picture the coffee shop where everybody knows your name, where there's diversity and we're making sure everybody's included and there's a social just, justice component. And, and I think we all can learn from each other in that because each generation has something to offer in terms of what it means to be intentional community, because that's the vision that God gives for his church here, that we're together, that we're not giving up meeting together, but we're encouraging one another uh, all the more. You know, younger followers of Jesus could learn from their grandparents and great-grandparents how to show up just because the church is open and there's an APB saying there's water in the basement, we need help. You know, um, and, 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 you know, boomers could learn how to make sure that everybody's included because the younger generation is really good in noticing who's not in the room. Uh, those of us who are a little bit older could probably learn that. Who are we excluding unintentionally uh, or even worse, intentionally? And, uh, you know, we all could learn and, and all of us could learn the value of sitting down one-on-one -on -one with your sibling in Jesus and saying, how are you with God these days? What's he doing? What do you long to see God do? What are you afraid of? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? Uh, where everybody is encouraged. You can just imagine this vision of, of spiritual depth of community um, where everyone is encouraged in walking together with Jesus. Let us consider 
how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. The purpose of the meeting together is encouragement. Uh, that you would leave here more encouraged in your walk with Jesus than when you walked in. God gives us this vision of community. You know, I've got some photos here. I've got a photo of a fire ant. Could we get that first pick if we can find it? A fire ant is a little red fiery guy, and they're called fire ants because you really don't want them crawling all over you because you will be on fire. Um, but one of the things, they live in, in rainforests. They also live in, in parts of Texas. And in parts of Texas, you can get a lot of water. And when it rains and there's water on the ground, let's get that next one. Um, they do something where they all climb on top of each other and they create these floating mats of fire ants. We've got a zoom in close up, I think, next, um, where they're literally, everybody's included, and they sucker to each other to make sure everybody's head is above the water. And so they float as one big community until the flood is no more and they could safely go on their way. And it's a picture, I think, of what the church is as God's ark of salvation in the midst of the flood of sin that is this world is God gives us a vision of the church where nobody gets left out, nobody's left to drown, and you sucker somebody in and pull them back onto the raft because it's the ark. You know, it's a vision of intentional community together. Thank you. It's also a vision of consistency with one another. Uh, did you notice that, that consistency flows out of that intentionality? He says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Maybe let us consider. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to spend time each week thinking about who you could encourage and how you could encourage them to love people and to do good deeds, to, to live as becometh followers of Jesus. It means actively and proactively thinking through. Let us consider what, might, what we might be able to do to encourage each other, to love each other more, to love our enemies more, to be kind to those who are unkind to us. There's a proactive contemplation here, and, and that assumes that I know my spiritual siblings well enough to know their needs, to know their weaknesses, to know their strengths, the opportunities that they alone are facing, because let's face it, there are, because of your own story, because of your own sin, your own failings, your own strengths, your own gifts, your own community, there are some hands that only you can hold. And Jesus is saying, I want you to think, how can I hold their hand? How can I love them? How can I include them? How can I encourage them? How can I build them up? How can I help them step out and love other people? Uh, a community of people who are intentionally having this depth of knowledge of each other in order to love well requires a consistency of presence in each other's lives. You know, I, I often talk about, you know, the singles ministry I led here in the 1990s, um, worst singles ministry in the history of Christendom. I had no idea what I was doing. I thought they just needed an R.C. Sproul video to be happy, and I was evidently mistaken. But, um, but it was one of those things um, where um, there was a pattern, as poorly led as, as the ministry was, there was community there for those who wanted it. And, and, and for some of us, it was all the community we really had um, because a lot of us were transient. We weren't from St. Louis. We didn't have family here. We didn't have, we didn't go to high school here. Um, and, uh, you know, and yet there was a pattern that I noticed as I was doing singles ministry in the 1990s to people who are now your dad or your mom, um, you know, is there was a way that, 
people would show up and they were so hungry and thirsty for community, but then I would watch them, even as they're communicating that, I would watch them sabotage their own effort to find community. Um, you know, they'd, they'd show up two or three weeks in a row and talk about how wonderful it is and how they'd start getting to know people, and then they'd disappear for a month, and then they'd come back for a week, they'd disappear for three weeks, they'd come back for one more. Some of you, this sounds familiar, uh, <laughs> we've all been there, disappear for five more weeks and show up one more time and then say, you know, I, w I came here because I was looking for community and I didn't find it. Bye. Now, why didn't they find community? Because you can't build community once a month. You know, you have to be present. You have to be there. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. You're not going to be encouraged if you're holding God's people at a distance. You know, the lonely Christian is the defeated Christian every single time. They were doing everything necessary to make sure that their deep longing for community was unfulfilled. And it was sad. It was heartbreaking to watch. This is a vision that requires a constancy with one another. Um, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. It requires that we commit the time and the resources to build friendships within the body of Christ, to get close enough consistency even to be able to minister to one another. If you're not close enough to, to, to sin against each other, then you're not close enough. Uh, you know, if you're not close enough to ask forgiveness from each other, you're not close enough. You know, uh, if you're married and you think, well, I haven't asked my spouse to forgive me for years, you're not close enough, you know, <laughs> or you're blind. Uh, you know, intentional community is a vision that he's giving, but it's a vision that requires a real commitment to one another, a consistency. It's a vision of getting outside of ourselves in order to love one another. Um, think of how beautiful a community is in which everybody is trying not to get their own needs met, but to make sure that everybody else's needs are met. Loving one another, asking questions to find out uh, who you are and what your needs are, sharing where you're weak and where you're strong and where you need help and offering help where it's needed, making sure that no one is left alone, that no one's on the outside, that no one's excluded who belongs. Everyone has a seat at the table, a community, a family where everyone's learning to get outside of ourselves in order to love one another. It's a vitality. It's a picture of life. And no one is along just for the show because real church is not a show. It's a community gathering around the Word of God and the sacraments and loving one another. You know, that the friend in, in, in Nashville where his church, you know, they'd loved Jack, and Jack had taken advantage of him, and, and what was beautiful after that is they were able to minister to Jack in his shame by putting their arm around him, forgiving him, loving him, and helping him get back on his feet helping him get back into community because he was holding back because he was ashamed. And they were able to minister the gospel, the unconditional love and acceptance of Jesus for sinners like us. And it's that acceptance and that encouragement and that investment in his life and that presence through the hard times of his life, because addictions don't go away like that. You know, you, you fight them until you die in order to gain freedom. And, and, and for him to have freedom, it required the church to be the church not walking in and judging him and telling him all the bad things he had done, but walking in and forgiving him and embracing him and telling him, we love you, Jack. We, you shouldn't have hidden from us. We, we don't love you less because you took advantage of us. 
It's a vision for the church of intentional community together, of consistency with one another, a vision of getting outside of ourselves to love others. And we see, so we see this temptation to give up on the church. We also see here a vision for the church as intentional community, and that's a vision I don't ever want to give up on. But we see something more here, something more than a vision. We see a hope, a hope for the church. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. Hope, remember, is not what we say in, Eng- in, in American English when we say, I hope it doesn't rain on Saturday, where it's future-directed wish projection. They're not saying, let us hold on to the future-directed wish projection that we profess. No, it's an expectation. It's something they're confident in, something they know is going to happen. Even though they don't see it now, they know it's going to happen. Let us hold on to the expectation that we have because the one who promised is faithful and he's going to do everything he has promised in you, through you, and carrying you through to the other side. Its basis of this hope, as always, is the finished work of Christ. Notice how the passage begins. It says, therefore, let us do all this stuff. And that should prompt us to look backward at what was before, but we don't have to because he actually thankfully repeats it for us. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence because Jesus died for us. A kind of community that Jesus is here envisioning as his church isn't possible when only mortals are involved. Our sins would undo any good thing we might try to create. And yet, what we have here is the presence of Jesus who has given us access to God, the most holy place, that is the presence of God, through his blood, he has opened the doors. Um, Therefore, since we have confidence by the blood of Jesus, that's a hope for the church, an expectation that's based on what Christ has already done, but also based on what he's going to do, because God is inviting us into his presence. We have confidence to enter his presence. He's inviting us in. Let us draw near to God, he says. God is inviting you in in the full assurance of faith that God is not an angry ogre shaking a stick at you. He's your dad. And if you have Jesus, he is wild about you, singing over you in song, loving you, clothing you in the righteousness of Jesus, forgiving all of our sins, and smiling over us as we seek in one repentant, stumbling step forward after another to follow him. Faith that the blood of Jesus has invited us into the God's presence of God and into his church, which is his ark of salvation. In saying, draw near to the church, he's also saying, draw near to God. And that should tell you something. When you go over to your best friend's house, you're also going over to your best friend's spouse's house. And if the church is the house of God, realize Jesus is here. He's here drawing near to God as you're drawing near to the church. Two sides of the same coin. The church is the temple of the Lord, the Bible says. The Bible says the church is the house that God is building for himself. The church we read is the body of Jesus. It means that that the church is the context in which God wants to meet with you. In that family, not the building, the church, the family, the church. If you're a follower of Jesus, the church is something you're a part of whether you acknowledge it or not. And you need your siblings in Jesus. You will die on your own. You know, you'll be that coal burning out all by itself. You know, the purpose of Keith's illustration was not to teach you that the church is on fire, and if you get away from it, you won't burn up. But if you go back in, you're going to burn. No, it's, it's the 
opposite of that, that, that we're coals. We were made to burn and to glow and to experience that heat of community because the church is where God dwells in a world of darkness and sin, cruelty, rebellion, and betrayal, we are so much less than the best of humanity. But God has washed us and brought us into his church, and he's saying, draw near to me. Draw near to me by drawing near to one another because the day is approaching. That's the future-directed hope. When that day is coming, he says, when, when every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord, when he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. You see the day approaching, he says, the day when darkness becomes light. And we again see the face of our God. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Christ's body, the church, our ark of salvation to carry us through the storm to the other side, safely into the arms of Jesus. Friends, you need each other. Don't try to do Christianity on your own. You need each other on your own. You will perish. God has not left you on your own. We've got a video here. I think it's from the BBC, if I remember right. Can we roll that video? It's about a lion. On young males begin to explore the boundaries of the Pride's territory. Young lion, checking the waters. Hyenas. There are hyenas out there, folks. God may have made you a lion. Straight into the middle of the hyena clan. <laughs> but he's on his own. He's stronger, but he's on his own. Hyenas can take out a lion. It's impossible to fight them all at once. in the distance. His ally, Tartu, has heard the commotion.
friends, we're that lion. And we need each other. He's lucky. We're that lion. And there are packs of hyenas out there. And, they're gonna, and they can't wait to take you down. We need our fellow lions. We need our siblings in Jesus. Alone, we can't stand. We don't stand a chance. With all its flaws, the church is the ark of salvation because it's the body of Jesus, and he saved us to be together as a family, as his body, as his pride of lions who have each other's back. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray.